0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Paula Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. We will do our best to answer them during the show and certainly after. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and many other publications. I believe he was on Fox Business News today. And in my humble opinion, one of the top follows and futurists on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-Zero. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. And we're live here in the middle of a Silicon Valley tech company, as you can find I guess. Anyways, my awesome co-host, Vala Ashtar, one of the top CIO followers, some of the top CMO followers, which is double duty. And more importantly, he's an author himself, uh, avid contributor to, in the past, Huffington Post, now ZDNet, and more importantly, one of the top followers on Twitter and social media in general. And more importantly, we're here not to talk about ourselves, actually. We're here to talk about what's happening in healthcare this week. Who do we have that personifies what we're talking about?
0: Yeah it's our privilege to have a repeat guest John Nosta president and founder of Nosta Labs Nosta Labs is a digital health think tank that focuses on guiding companies NGOs and governments through dynamic dynamics of expl- ex- exponential change in healthcare tech marketplace a leading voice in the convergence of technology and health John helps define dissect the, the deliberate global trends in digital health. We're gonna talk a lot about that today. John is consistently ranked as the top name in almost every digital health list and sustains a position for several years. Beyond simply an influencer, John also is defined as the most admired top disruptor in digital health. He's a member of the Google Health Advisory Board, Penn's Health, critical for Forbes, and a digital self for Psychology Today. An awesome follow on uh-huh. Twitter. I repeatedly look at his stream. Uh, at John Nosta, J-O-H-N-N-O-S-T-A. Welcome back, John, to Disrupt TV.
2: Hey, guys, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. So number one, I got the memo, right? I got the trees behind me. So so we are we are in cosmic alignment on that. But, you, you know, my secret to success on, on Twitter and social media has just been following Ray and Vala all these years. It's been, it's been a long and... and an extraordinary journey. So, just keeping my eye on your guys, you guys, and what you're doing has really been a, a great help to me personally. So, I thank you for that.
0: Thank you, Sherry.
1: You're too kind. Well, hey, you know, you're the, one of the first places I look when I try to figure out what's happening in digital health. And, you know, one of the big things that you've been writing about is the transhuman era. What does that mean, right? What's this between man, machine, transhuman, and where our worlds and
2: lives are going, right? One word, freaky. It's freaky. I mean, you know, this this convergence of man and machine is the domain of science fiction. Let's face it. Right? Every time you talk about that, it's either for some kind of a TV show or some kind of science fiction venue. Maybe a little bit at meetings. Go into a pharmaceutical company and talk about a transhuman reality and get booted out the door. Right? That's that that's sort of the fundamental reality which is changing. Now, what changed, and this broke just yesterday, and I really think it's important. So if you wanna take away one thing, it's this fact. Everybody knows about Gartner and the hype cycle curve, right? It's one of the fundamental tools. Everybody cites it. I bet you even Mary Meeker has it in her presentation, right? It is a fundamental tool of innovation. And basically what that does, it takes the two to 3,000 points of innovation and plots them on a curve. So what we look at is the, the growth, the excitement, the hype, the um, uh, aspects of, of change over time. It's an important tool, everybody knows it. So when I go into that pharmaceutical meeting and I talk about the hype chart or the hype curve, everybody looks at it. So yesterday the 2018 curve came out and what did they say in the headline of their press release? The new point of interest is the blurring of the distinction between man and machine. I almost fall off my chair, right? The blurring of the distinction between man and machine and over the next decade, this is what will occur. So number one, blurring of the distinction. Number two, we now have a time period over the next decade beginning now. So for me, that was news. And number two, it was a wake-up call to a very, very freaky and unsettling reality.
0: So, John, is this, uh, this is beyond a knee replacement, hip replacement, uh, you know, artificial eyes, ability to hear. Can you talk about and elaborate a bit more about Transhuman era, or the beginning of the transhuman era. I, I, I recall a 60-minute show about two months ago, where the 60-minute uh, personality is interviewing an MIT student, and the MIT student had a gadget embedded or around yeah. his ear, and he would just surf the net with his mind. Then the the he, uh, the, the, the vibrations behind his ear would translate into answers to questions. So in yeah. real time. It wasn't typing or swiping or voice, but the user interface was his mind. Well, so, you know, are, are we talking about embedded electronics to enhance your ability as a human? I mean, what, what are we talking about when we talk about I think that? I, you or know, this
2: follow- singularity. I, I, I bet you, yeah, you know, I'd love to get Ray Kurzweil's read on this um, because I think that that, that, that curve you know, and the singularity might, might be playing into this. You know, it's a complex constellation of features. Number one, that device was less a transhuman device than more of a user interface, right? At first, we would type, right? Then we would use a mouse. Then we would use touchscreen. Then we would use maybe virtual reality and, and move things around. And that is is another another user engagement or user interface. So I don't think that is transhuman. But what I think we'll, we're going to begin to see is something that as we optimize our engagement, I think we're going to begin to optimize the human experience. Here, here's what bothers me. Some, for some strange reason, people have established humans as the quintessential life form, right? I mean, you know, let's, let's push on the bounds here. People say that if only a chat bot could be as good as a human, right? I blame Alan Turing. For this, for this dialogue, but I would argue that, <laughs> that the notion of a chat bot could become better than human. Why not? It could speak multiple languages, multiple dialects. It could be gender neutral or male or female or gender fluid. It could be almost anything. It could use advanced analytics and data to process what we're saying to make the dialogue that much more rich, that much more quicker, that much more engaging. So the opportunity for humanity to evolve in ways that we become more human is, I believe, at the core of this thing called the transhuman reality. So it's not becoming a cyborg. It's it's becoming more human. If you think about the reality that we live in, okay? We talked about dogs a little bit. Our dogs smell 50 times greater than we do. Their smell reality is very different than the human reality. Our eye looks at a very small, bar- narrow band of the electromagnetic spectrum. We have cell phone communications, Wi-Fi signals beaming through our body. So not that, they want, not that we want to smell everything or sense everything but the human reality is, is impinged, it's encumbered by certain constraints. And that's what I see advantages, one advantages to, to this, this kind of change in humanity. You know, what you're talking about, oh, go ahead, Val. No,
0: go on, please. Right.
2: Um, you, what you're t- talking about is kind
1: of interesting, right? It's, it's the fact that we can only see things within our own realms of possibilities. Yeah. But within what we're seeing as we actually enter a transhuman era, other realms may exist that may emerge that we might, know, might not even known existed. And I think that's, that's very, very interesting in terms of, like, where that takes us. Um, and, and one of the things that you're talking about is that, you know, some of that innovation comes from unusual and eclectic sources. Right. And so
2: how do we get to the lightning rod, not the lightning? Well, here's, you know, let me just take a quick step back. You know, deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's uh, disease has been around for 20 years. Yep. Uh, The use of a a cochlear implant to have people hear, it's been around for 20 years. That's not new. That's a transhuman dynamic. You know, think about it. I'm going to have a, I have a cochlear implant. or I have some sort of a hearing augmented reality. And I decide to go to the opera I just download a program to optimize the experience for opera, or I want to go to a race, an auto race, and I, I download the experience to modulate the sounds of, of a loud uh, racing car engine. So it's here and it's going to happen very, very quickly. Now, the reality is how do we integrate this into growing a business? And, and what people usually say is innovate, be creative, be disruptive, right? Those words, and I, I, they make me crazy because imagine a company, where you've got 500 5000 or 50000 employees and they're all disruptors. That's not a company, all right? I mean, you might want to have a handful of disruptors with a handful of implementers. So so what I see in the evolution of innovation today is that i word. So it's about innovation, but to a large degree it's taking that point of innovation and putting it into an implementation strategy. Now, that, that innovation, as you alluded to, Ray, is real tricky because uh, Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard talked about evolution. He called it punctuated equilibrium. He said, with evolution, nothing happened, then all of a sudden something happened. So we had a change. And I think that's the, that boom, the Cambrian explosion. That, to me, is what we have to do around innovation strategy for our companies. It's not the arbitrary intrusion. And I use the word intrusion very deliberately here of the innovation vibe, right, into a process. The hard part is to find out the spot at which innovation may be able to elicit that punctuated equilibrium dynamic. So in healthcare, I mean, maybe the best place to look at is, oh, I'll make one up, uh, social mediator mediated clinical trial recruitment. Let's go there because we know that area is broken. You know, or maybe we'll look at molecular discovery or genomic analysis. No. So so I think that you know that that's the point. Now the other the, the other concept around here is that innovation in today's world is large. I think it was 67% of new drugs not come from acquisition, come from startups, not from intrinsic research at the base company. So what companies need to do, especially big pharma, big uh, big manufacturing, big t- companies is not be a bastion of lightning, but become a lightning rod. And that's a real fundamental difference because what that means is that you have to exist in the collaboratory. You have to use an effective Twitter profile, right? So that people can reach you. And that, that's a fundamental difference. Innovation is usually external, but you've got to be able to attract it because everybody's looking for it now.
0: I totally 100% agree with you. Build that personal learning network by being collaborative and accessible and engaged. Now, it was Drucker, Peter Drucker, who said uh-huh. the two most important things in business is innovation and marketing. Uh-huh. And yet, you recently wrote, Nothing feels <laughs> a bad idea faster than good advertising. Well, <laughs> so what's the right balance between when we talk about emerging tech like AI, machine learning, blockchain, CRISPR, whatever it may be? and marketing and advertising. What's that right balance? I'll
2: give, you, I'll give you two examples that I find really, really interesting. The first is the diffusion of innovation in a medical construct, right? Diffusion of innovation. How does an idea move through a system? That's, that's basically innovation. If you have an ulcer 50 years ago, they would say it's caused by acid. It's caused by stress. They would do a surgery called a vagotomy. They, they would look at it from one perspective, but someone said, you know what? It's actually a bacterial infection that took 20 years to get into people's heads that you don't necessarily treat that with with h2 inhibitors or acids, even though that's part of the plan so this notion of treating right. the bacterial infection heliobacter pylori required two things one clinical validation and the other one ideas that stick to the roof of your customer's brain that's where marketing is so important because we are all victims of marketing. We have to admit it. Every focus group that I've been in, in where the physician says, oh, no, please don't talk to me about marketing. Don't, I don't want to see that ad. I don't, I don't believe in ads. As they finish their discussion, they put on their Armani coat and drove away in their BMW. So, you know, we have to do it. Now, that's an interesting example. The other example is this guy called Ken Jennings. Everybody knows who Ken Jennings is, the Jeopardy champ, right? Yep, yep. He was the champ until IBM Watson beat him. And and that was the launch of IBM Watson into the public arena, not a peer reviewed clinical paper at an authoritative publication, but on television. And I, I think the problem was IBM got out ahead of itself. And what happens is they didn't manage expectations and also the expectations were so high that disappointment ensued. So it's really managing expectations and it's, it's, it's striking that balance. And it's different for every dynamic. So, you know, you got to make sure the most important thing is, is that your ego is writing checks that your skill set can cash. And I think a lot of innovators make that error and they really get hurt.
0: John, that's an incredibly viral tweet. So after the show, please make sure you <laughs> okay. <tweet
2: them>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that is very very cool. And let's 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 get down to sound bites. I'm actually gonna do thumbs up, thumbs down. Right. You know, we're talking about awesome technologies that happened in healthcare. Let's talk about in the next five years. I want to get your thumbs up, thumbs down on a few. So let's start with one. EMRs, thumbs up, thumbs down. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> love them, love, love and hate them. Exactly. Love and hate them. Next. Right? Love and hate, right? Love and hate. All right. It's AI. Toxic. Where are we going right. with AI? AI. Where are we going with AI? Game changer. Big th- two
2: thumbs up. Yeah. Two thumbs up. All right. All right. Up. We'll do Cisco and Ebert all the way down. All right. All right. CRISPR. Where are we going with CRISPR? Oh uh, CRISPR. You know, two thumbs up again. CRISPR is fundamental. It. It's really the domain, I think, that life science and pharmaceutical companies should own. Genomists, CRISPR, instead of trying to be patient-centric and owning this nonsense of consumer centricity like Apple or like Amazon, they should own hardcore science like CRISPR. That's a game changer. New data suggests that when you make changes, you find unintended consequences. So there is a red flag. So I'm going to give one thumbs up because of the red flag. Got it
1: red flags to like, uh, you know, weird journals and weird generals in China coming back 20 years younger. I <laughs> don't know how
2: that happened. All right, blockchain, thumbs up, thumbs down. Where yeah, are you doing uh, on that one? Two thumbs up. I mean, the blockchain to me is a tactic. Blockchain is not a big okay. idea. Blockchain is assembly line, right? Now go build it's your assembly line. Got it. What about quantum computing? Uh, evolution of computing. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's here, they're doing it now. I think it's, it's, it's extraordinary because it's going to mediate processing and AI. Again, quantum computing is basically a speed dynamic. And I think that's going to shift all the other dynamics. All right, very cool.
0: I'm gonna throw a non-tech into the sure. mix. The I DBA love it. i gonna give it a two thumbs up, but importance of culture. Ah, ah,
2: you know what? I used to say the hell with culture. Give me a, give me a dynamic leader like, you know, oh, I don't know. Um, Again, two, two quick points, Vala, because uh, you know I, I, I got, uh, there's a hot button for me. Sure. Number one, leadership is important, right? But leadership is not always big and bold. Not everybody is Elon Musk. Not everybody is Steve Jobs. Sometimes they're Nikola Tesla. Sometimes they're fragile souls that have to be coddled. And in healthcare, in life science, we see a lot of those fragile voices that speak with great innovation, but not with that booming tonality that we see. So that's number one. That doesn't drive innovation. What drives innovation is culture. It's been seen time and time again that the ability to assimilate and to drive these ideas in the context of a corporate structure is really what drives innovation. Because let's face it, people are stuck in mediocrity they don't want to change they're fear of change and they're fearful of the speed of change so unless your your peers your group is willing to adopt change it's not going to happen so that that culture really squashes innovation you
0: wrote that speed of change actually is the number one concern yeah. for CEOs. Yeah. So, so is the most disruptive force when it comes to drifting away from your core values or guiding principles or your cultural make- makeup, this unprecedented velocity, speed, and direction of change that CEOs have to manage?
2: Well, you know what? I mean, I was, I was talking to my good friend, Richie Atuaro and, mm. and he said, fail, Too we talk fast. about... We talked about fail fast, right? He's the fastest talker around. And he said, I can't have my company fail. And I looked at him and I said, we're not looking for everyone to fail at the same time. Mm. And this goes back to the notion of punctuated equilibrium. We have to pick our battles. And we don't want a company full of disruptors. And we don't want a company full of change agents. This is why it gets so difficult. Find the spot. Implement change. And, And changing fast the notion of agility is not speed okay because the ability to understand when to change is a real cognitive skill it takes market strength and market understanding so failing fast does not mean failing smart and there's a big difference there wow resilience business continuity all different
1: areas we're here live with john nasta president and founder at nasta lab Twitter, you can follow him at John Nasta. Thanks for being on the show. Always a pleasure, guys. uh, Summer out there in the Poconos. Thanks. Thanks. See you soon, guys. Bye bye.
0: Thank you, John. Thank you so much.
1: Hey, thank you. He's (laughs) off the lake. He's he's about to jump into the Poconos. This is awesome in the lake. So we caught him in uh, the the wonderful background. But we're getting some
0: really good
1: insights here.
0: Great. There was a lot of golden nuggets in that 20 minutes. Yeah, John's pretty incredible. And speaking of incredible, it's our pleasure to introduce our, our second guest, uh, Anai Santiago, uh, Chief Information Security Officer at Christiana Care Health System. Christiana Care Health System is the largest healthcare provider in the state of Delaware. Uh, Anai leads a team of information security professionals in supporting uh, the hospital's strategic initiatives by managing risks, implementing policies and controls, and general overall awareness. Prior to CCHS, I spent 10 years as the information security and privacy officer at Einstein Healthcare Network, where she led, where she had overall responsibility for organizations' information security and privacy program. You can follow Anahi on Twitter at A-N-A-H-I-S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O. Welcome, I to uh, Disrupt TV.
3: Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here.
0: My pleasure,
1: Hey, thanks for being back. We are talking about healthcare. We just got the whole futurist view from John. Now we got to get back to reality, like what's happening, what's new, (laughs) what's happening inside organizations, making it work. Um, So, you know, lots of investments going on. What are the big tech investments in healthcare for you, both in IT and of course, operations?
3: So so I'd like to start by saying that pretty much everything now touches IT, right? Every every piece of the hospital operations has some IT component. And so IT has become a primary driver in healthcare delivery and a core component of um, healthcare organizations. Um, As discussed earlier, right, medical records, um, most organizations have implemented them. Um, And so now they're looking at um, things around interoperability, population health management, and um, in my opinion, consumerism. Uh, Patients want fast access to healthcare. They want it in the way that they want to consume it. And we need to be, as organizations, nimble um, and deliver technology that's going to help them to get the needs clinically that they want where they want it. Um, In addition to that, also population health management. You know, the world is moving to fee-for-value, and we're trying to keep the patients outside of the hospital and in their homes. And so we need to invest in technology that's going to enable clinicians to care for patients in their care settings as opposed to inside the hospital. Um, And that includes telemedicine. It includes giving patients technology that they can utilize to be able to take care of themselves. And it also um, means uh, business business intelligence, artificial intelligence, analytics. Um, We have a ton of data, way more than any human can consume. And so we really need to invest in technology that's going to help us understand that data and use it to be able to improve clinical delivery.
0: That's amazing. What what an incredible role you have, because you have this balancing act of Obviously the integrity, the availability, the security, uh, and at the same time enhancing and exceeding and the or meeting and exceeding the the, the, the patient or your customer's expectations, which continue to grow. The, the, the experience is as important as the product and the service that you deliver. So what do you take into consideration as you develop your investment thesis from telemedicine, robotic surgeries, machine learning, blockchain, augmented virtual reality, mobile social, and all these other uh, mega trends that frankly are disrupting every industry, including healthcare. What do you how do you, how do you choose where you invest your dollars uh, and, and, the, and the service that you deliver to your stakeholders?
3: So, you know, it's a, col- it's a collective decision. Mm-hmm. Um, strategically, the organization gets together and really thinks about, um, you know, what, what, what are the important things that we need to invest? And, and we went through this exercise, actually, a few months ago, and it was really fun because we didn't look at what we, you know, we we're trying to build the strategy for the next three years. And what we asked ourselves is, where do we want to be in 2025? And what do we need to do in the next three years in order to be able to facilitate what healthcare delivery is going to look like in 2025? And, you know, that takes, that requires a lot of vision. And, um, and as a security professional, my role in that is really to be able to enable that strat- those strategic principles while keeping data safe, the organization safe, our patients safe. And so it's really important for me and my role to understand what that strategy is so that I can get in front of it. And so that I can build an 18-month strategic plan that will enable their three-year strategic plan that will enable healthcare delivery in 2025. And um, you know, in, in the decades past, the, inf- the information security professionals were seen as the place where things go to die, right? that We were the authoritative. No, you can't do X, Y, and Z. That, it wasn't that
1: bad. We went to you guys for we went to you guys for help <laughs> but when things all went chaotic because like yeah. oh my god we've been hacked right I mean you know it wasn't yeah yeah that um, bad. The,
3: the threat landscape also looked very differently but um but does, the does, but the new information security professional today has to be very, very business focused. And so we really need to understand what the organization wants to accomplish and we have to enable it. Um, Ultimately, I think one of the things that I say over and over again is information security is not a technology issue. It is a patient safety issue. Mm. And and if we don't do information security well, we can hurt patients. Um, And that doesn't mean just hurt patients in the context of their data is leaked um, or they're subject to medical identity theft. But we may make systems unavailable for clinicians, um, thereby preventing them to be able to deliver care. And you know, uh, the hospital runs on technology. When that technology is not available, that puts patients at risk. And so we CISOs of today really have to have a really good balancing act in how we implement technology all while enabling the business.
1: makes total sense you know you are saying something really important here right and it's really about how do we actually deliver on patient centricity um, even from a security uh, professionals pr- perspective and I think that's that's really important because as, as we think about security we never we don't often think about it from the patient point of view I think a lot of folks think about it from you know the systems you know protecting data but it's really it comes back to the patients and I think that's a very unique perspective you have there um, I want to jump in a little bit on some of the trends right and, and that we keep seeing um, in these areas um, and really thinking about things like telemedicine robotic surgeries um, what are security considerations that people have to think about in these these examples because I don't think a lot of folks have thought through that. We thought about the possibilities. We thought about what, what we can possibly do, right? All the other great lies we can save, but I think there's an element of risk here that people have to understand.
3: Well, hopefully, if not in every organization in the majority of organizations, you have somebody like in my role that is thinking about those things. Um, And hopefully um, the leaders in those organizations are having conversations with their security professionals um, in, in, you know, in their vision and in implementing all of these new technologies. But, you know, all those technologies have risk associated with them. Um, Any piece of technology is in some way hackable. And that could be, um, you know, for, for, data leakage or it could be to make those technologies unavailable it could also be to make those technologies hurt patients right we've heard about the hackable cardiac device Um, back in the day it was fiction it was you know a vice president and i think it was 24 the the tv show Um, but that's very real today there are (laughs) patients walking around um, right now with a cardiac device that has a vulnerability in it um, that may or may not have been passed. And so, you know, we have to really think as we're looking at new technologies about what those threat vectors are and how we're going to be able to plug them.
1: Sure. You know, one of the things. I want to jump in just a little bit deeper. I, I just want to jump in just a little bit deeper. The CISO role in the healthcare space, it's not a very popular role right? Not a lot of organizations have this. How did you get to this role? And, and and I think it's very important for people to understand why it's in place because I don't see a lot of healthcare organizations with CISOs.
3: Well, and that and that is a very disappointing fact, but you're right. Um, you know, I, I started, so the HIPAA security rule came into effect in 2005. Um, I was hired at Einstein Healthcare Network as their first CISO um, in 2005. Um, and so, at that time that organization much like my current organization uh, understood the importance of information security and really valued it and frankly you know, the hipaa security rule says you have to have a designated security professional so those that don't are they're failing the the core component of the biggest regulation um, that serves to protect you know patients and their information and and so it's it, it's always surprising and alarming to me when I hear that a lot of organizations don't have CISOs. and I can frankly say that I get calls from recruiters uh, on a weekly basis, and a lot of times they're look, you know, it's the big healthcare organizations that are looking for their very first CSO, and um, and I don't. Yeah don't really understand it. I mean, healthcare. You're
1: you are one of the pioneers in this. You're one of the pioneers in this field, right? I mean, there's Adam and Eric and Kevin. I mean, those are the other folks that are in this space. But there aren't a lot of folks that are as deep in terms of knowledge and expertise as you in this space. That's why. That's why I'm asking.
3: Yeah. And and but that's one of the reasons why healthcare is the most targeted industry in the in the country. Uh, a lot of organizations, they've rushed to spend capital on electronic health records and technology, um, but didn't rush to invest in security, um, including hiring a designated security professional. And so we're Swiss cheese as, as an industry. Um, and we're just starting to catch up. I will say, I'm, I'm seeing more and more organizations adopt the role of a CISO, but we're still a, a long ways away. Um, and, and the reality of it is we have so much information, so much valuable information. A lot of people question, well, why would you attack healthcare, right? We're caregivers. Well, nation states have a, have a keen interest in having access to the troves of data that we, that we have um, that they can apply to precision medicine, to um, engineering better drugs, better devices, gaining competitive advantages at the national level. And so we're very attractive to hackers. Um, credit cards go for six cents on the dollar and on the dark net. Um, I've seen partial medical records go for a, up to $1,100 for, a partial, for one partial medical record.
0: Wow.
1: The, the, the troves are there. The troves are definitely there. So I was just in the dark web yesterday. So you were.
0: <laughs> don't ask me lot. <laughs> That's the
1: best one on this. It's film. research. <laughs> it's research for commerce. It's, research for commerce. <laughs> it's the best place for
0: commerce. There's actually so. a
3: lot of really good, there are a lot of really good sites on the dark web that are not criminal nature, but it's also really good to go out there and see what's out there so that um, you can really put into perspective why healthcare is such an attractive target for the bad guys.
0: Sure, sure. So as, 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 as the team captain uh, responsible for IT and security. Um, how do you build uh, a Philadelphia Eagles championship team? Cool. That, that, pain, that pains me, by the way, to say that from Boston. But but uh, <laughs> I, I I cannot believe this is on video. This is on vicious <laughs> For the record, I, I actually got a rash on my hand as I said <laughs> that. But uh, as, a, as a lifelong New England Patriots uh. But what are some of the skill sets you look for to build a war-class uh, security IT organization? Advice to other CIOs, where should they go for recruiting? And how do you keep, and more importantly, retain talent? Because this is a white hot space. Every company wants security right. and IT talent.
3: Absolutely, it is a negative unemployment field, right? There are over a million open jobs with no one qualified to fill them. Mm-hmm. And so you know, to take a page out of Doug Peterson's book, I would say be aggressive, be aggressive in networking, Be aggressive in identifying future forward what your needs are going to be. And don't wait to recruit when you have that open position. Really start now. Um, I've I've had the fortune of being able to fill fairly quickly the positions that we've had that have opened up here at Christiana Care, mostly through my network or my team's network. Um, We've also identified key areas um, in IT outside of security where there's talent that can be taught. I always say, you know, information security can be taught, but you can't teach the unique skills that I require for for my organization. And those are really um, soft skills, analytical skills, understanding how to talk to the business and walk away with a mission that's going to help them to deliver and understand that you, you need to learn in this, in this field. Um, change is constant. Um, the threat landscape moves at a really, really fast pace. And so on, every, every, on a daily basis, we need to learn. And so I'm lo- I look for people that are hungry, that are eager to learn and to grow, and then we can teach them the information security skills, right? Information security isn't just a technical um, discipline. It's about risk management. It's about enterprise risk management. And technology is a piece of it, but all of the technology in the world, frankly, isn't going to help an organization if we don't actually have the people skills and if we don't actually look towards our workforce um, in training and development, development and in making sure that they understand what cybersecurity is, what the risks are, and that they help us as an organization to be protected.
1: You know, that's actually a great point here, right? A lot of what you're doing is, is risk management and mitigation. Uh, what's the role of data and analytics and insights in terms of what you do as you quantify that risk and, and help people understand how to budget for that?
3: Right. So, so we, have, we, we have lots and lots of data points that we, um, you know, um, correlate and, and, and use analytic, apply analytics towards so that we can manage effectively risks. Um, we've got many, many, many security tools. They don't talk to each other, um, which is often a challenge. And so we use even more third parties to help us to really under you know, b- bridge all that da- data together and provide us with actionable information that my team can take and apply controls towards, or for me to be able to take to the board or the audit committee to have conversations about budgets, about risk management, about resources that might be needed. Um, and frankly, a lot of times it's really about um, the people that I need from the organization to help me and my information security team to be able to deliver on security. My team alone is, can't, can't achieve effective protection of an organization. It really does take a village.
1: Wow. <laughs> so do you see automation and AI playing a bigger role in terms of- of security, Absolutely, especially for where
3: you are. Absolutely. And, and I think it depends on the level of maturity. Um, a lot of organizations, to your point, are just figuring out that security is important and are starting to invest in CISOs and in technology. Um, we're uh, a bit more mature. We've made a lot of those investments that um, are core components of information security. And so we're now looking at technology that's a lot more mature and also at automation and artificial intelligence to remove non-value added tasks from the hands of our analysts so that they can deliver on the value of information security and can do more of the critical risk management tasks that information security requires um, more effectively and and faster. So I think as organizations mature, we're gonna have to rely on automation and artificial intelligence to help us because The bad guys are moving way too fast for us to, you know, move at a human pace.
0: I agree. I agree. Our prior guest, John Noster, talked about innovation coming from unusual places, and he referenced the startup community. If I'm a CEO of a startup, healthcare tech startup, and I have the privilege of um, engaging with you, what should I say, what are you looking for to validate that although it's a startup, it may be technology or solution that you could use to not only protect, but better serve your stakeholders?
3: (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, We we, we are very innovative here. So I come across this a lot um, because we look at a lot of startup technologies that haven't really been um, used in other healthcare organizations. And so we have conversations about information security. And a lot of times they're learning from me. They're, you know, they, they, they've invested in the technology and the, you know, and whatever the thing is supposed to do. And often they forget that you also need to invest in technology. So the more attractive CEOs to me are the ones that have actually embedded security um, that, ha- you know, they have a security team, they have a software development life cycle, they have risk management practices, they have a designated security professional, um, that gives us a comfort level that they're mm-hmm. doing things um, appropriately. But absent those, I do recognize that a lot of these startups um, are just figuring this out, and it would be unfair to rule out a really cool piece of technology that's going to really help in care delivery, because they haven't really thought through te- Through security and so you know as a partner in innovation and in care delivery within my organization um, i have a role in helping to educate them Um, and if they're willing to partner and they're willing to do security even if after the fact or in concert with a particular implementation then you know i'm more than open to working with them to help them um, to build their product in, in a more secure fashion that's
0: awesome
1: Wow. And I, we got to have you at our event. Here, yeah, I was October. thinking about that. <laughs> it's Constellation Connected Enterprise It's October 22nd to 25th. We have a CISO panel. We're going to see it from all different angles. So we'll send you some more details if you can make it. But we are live here with Anai Santiago, Chief Information Security Officer, known as a CISO. If you don't know that, Christiana Care Health System, and you can follow her at A N A H I S A N T I A G O. Thank you for being on Disrupt TV.
3: Thank you, and go Eagles.
1: <laughs> oh man, this
3: hurts. It's hit the wow. oh, Hey, thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank
1: okay. you. I will make sure you get on back on the show. That's kind of
0: <laughs> man. Hey, it's awesome. Our next guest is from Boston, <laughs> So, although I have no idea what Ravi roots for, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, enough, with, uh, enough with the Philly guests. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, ouch. Yeah. The last no. two just crushed me. Uh, come on, Ravi, please bring it home. Uh, I know. Our, our final guest, we, 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 this is where we bring up the cleanup hitter to hit a grand slam. We have Ravi Rahmaturi, author of Reverse Innovation in Healthcare. Ravi is a top scholar in, uh, in international business, university distinguished professor in international business and strategy and director of Center for Emerging Market Markets at Northeastern University in Boston, um, Robbie reads for the Red Sox, Bruins, Celtics, and and, <laughs> and the Patriots. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Robbie's I'm fine with that. Is that okay? Yes, okay. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> Robbie's research and consulting work focuses on strategy and innovation by firms operating in or from emerging economies. He's the author. Uh, uh, an editor of seven books, including Understanding Multinationals from Emerging Markets. You can follow Ravi on Twitter at, uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, V-G-O-V-I-N-D-A-R-A-J-A-N. Welcome, Ravi, to the Shrub
4: TV. Thank you, nice to be here. Great to have you. <laughs> hey, thanks for
1: being on the show. Happy Friday. Um, you are writing a very, very interesting concept and book, Reverse Innovation in Healthcare. And I think we want to go deep here, um, but let's start with this piece around data, right? Uh, this idea for sorry, what's why this idea is important now and some of the data behind that conversation that you have as you're
4: building the case
1: on that reverse innovation in healthcare uh, that's happening. Yeah, well, first
4: let me explain the concept of reverse, reverse innovation for those who may not already be familiar with it. the Most of the innovations in the last 200 years have gone from the rich countries to the poor countries. Reverse innovation is exactly the opposite. It's when innovations go from poor countries to rich countries. We think there's going to be a lot more of that happening as we go forward. And one area in which we think there's potential for reverse innovation is in healthcare delivery. Now, at, at that point, most people are kind of flummoxed because they say, well, what can a poor country possibly teach an advanced country like the U.S. about healthcare?" And our point is not that you, you don't go to India or places like that to learn about the latest technology or the latest in science or the latest in drugs and devices. But if you would want to go to these places, if you want to learn how to deliver healthcare efficiently uh, while maintaining quality to the greatest number of people, Now think about this. These are the three main challenges we face in the US. How do we lower the cost? How do we expand access? And how do we maintain or improve quality? And if you really want to know how you can push the envelope on these dimensions, you're not going to find those ideas by looking within the US or even looking in other developed countries, because they all have the same problem. You have to go to a place like India, which is the place we went to. Of course, that's where my co-author and I are from. And we had stumbled on these hospitals that were doing incredible job in delivering world-class healthcare for about one to 2% of the prices we pay in the US. Wow. Now just think about that. It is impossible to do it for such a a low cost while maintaining world-class standards, while having hospitals that are accredited by JCI and others. And on many metrics of quality, these hospitals are able to provide uh, outcomes and you know, measured by all the traditional uh, metrics that are comparable to those in the US. Now let me emphasize, we are not saying all of India is like this. Sure. We're not saying all Indians get this kind of care, but there are a few hospitals that in the Indian context have developed the capabilities to do this. And what we're sure. saying is, the whole world can learn from these hospitals. And if you think about manufacturing and what happened in manufacturing, there's one factory in Japan run by Toyota that changed manufacturing, right. not only in the automotive industry, but in many industries, and not just in Japan, but across the world. We think some of the Fords and Toyotas of healthcare delivery happened to be in India. You know, why would you expect something like this to happen in India? Because the conditions are actually ripe for this kind of process innovation in a place like India. There are three factors we think are really stand out. you got a billion and more than a billion people who need healthcare, care. Sure. And you have a tremendous shortage of doctors and medical facilities. And until quite recently, the Indian government has been pretty hands off, which means there was room for innovation. And there are many private players, both for-profit and not-for-profit. That have been leading this innovation process, so in that context, is ripe for the kinds of process innovations we've seen in manufacturing, but in this case applied to healthcare, and so that's what we wrote up in this in this book.
0: That so that book represents uh, research of over two dozen hospitals. You interviewed uh, over 125 executives, both in the U.S. and India. So, Robbie, right. the extraordinary amount of research, what was the aha? Like, was there a moment with, or a realization that was maybe uh, congruent to your, your beliefs or your, your understanding before the research? Can you talk about some specific findings that really was, uh, you know, a, a incredible first-time realization that you could, at an incredible fraction of cost, deliver improved quality and then and the learnings that come from, from, for example, what you, what you saw in India?
4: Right. Well, the first thing, we ourselves were skeptical that these hospitals could be that good. Sure. Our readers are going to be even more skeptical. And the average person we speak to in the US is very skeptical. Sure. But think about the many other industries in which we have seen enormous improvements in quality with dramatic decreases in cost. Even sitting in Silicon Valley, Ray, you see this all the time, that companies constantly pushing the frontier of innovation. It's just that in healthcare, we haven't seen that happen in the, in the US. But what surprised me, as I went to some of these hospitals, that the inspiration for these hospitals were not other hospitals in the US or in the West. The companies they would talk about were McDonald's, Southwest Airlines, <laughs> yeah. Toyota, and Walmart. Yep, yep. And now you can draw a straight line through these four points, and they are all about high value. They're all about creating the greatest amount of benefit at the lowest possible cost, and this is what these hospitals were trying to do, each in their own way, using a lot of different techniques. How can I push the envelope? How can I get that quality to go up while I bring down the cost? They never thought there was a contradiction between higher quality and lower cost. That's something Toyota showed us a long time ago. Sure. Something Ford showed us a long time ago, the assembly line. So. I found it very interesting that these hospitals were actually inspired by these kinds of organizations. One of the most interesting hospitals I visited, probably, if I had to pick a single hospital that stood out among all the hospitals we went to, is an eye hospital called Arban Eye Hospital. It's based in South India. Oh, where is it? In, in yep. Madurai, in Madurai, in the south, in the state of Tamil Nadu, in South India.
1: Yep. Tamil Nadu. Yep.
4: Yeah. It was started by an ophthalmologist after he retired from a long career working for the uh, government of that province. And while he had been working in the hospital, he had run many eye camps. An eye camp is when you get on a bus, take a bunch of doctors and some equipment, go into the countryside, and screen patients where they live because they're not going to come to your hospital. So the hospital has to go to the patient. They screen the patients, and those who need care, they would then transport them bring them over and provide them free care. And this doctor, who was a vegetarian, but had gone to the US and seen McDonald's, and he said, why can't we take the approach that McDonald's takes to make hamburgers of a consistent quality at a low price, no matter who's doing the work, and apply that to eye care so that I can treat many, many more patients than I'm treating right now. And what started with this idea and with 11 beds in his own house, grew to become the world's largest eye hospital that does over a 1,000 eye surgeries every day. Now, there are other interesting examples of this kind. But I think the combination of enormous demand, poverty, people who mostly are paying out of pocket, and sometimes can't afford to pay anything, combined with compassion on the part of these founders who said, you know, is there some way I can apply this medical knowledge to serve the greatest number of people led to all kinds of process innovation. And we can talk about specific things, these hospitals do, if you'd like. But the kernel of the idea is actually, how can I touch the largest, greatest number of people and give them a quality care at a price they can afford? And if they can't afford it, Is there a way I can provide it to them for free? And use the profits I make from serving the paying patients to cover the cost of serving one or two non-paying patients.
1: You know, what I really love about this conversation is um, you know, there's a concept, and one of you might have heard as well from a guy named Navi Raju, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, about Jugat innovation, which is mm-hmm. really uh, delivering that uh, from a frugal point of view. But you're talking about this reverse innovation. Let's go deep on five core principles that you have there yeah. um, so yeah. people can understand how you get to that value-based innovation and the reverse innovation cycle that you're seeing happen here in healthcare. Yeah.
4: Okay. Let me try to be succinct because I think there's, there's a lot to cover here. One of the key principles is how they organize their assets into into a hub and spoke uh, network, and that means this is the
1: southwest. This is the southwest example, all right?
4: That's right. That's right. Uh, except there's sometimes there are many layers of hubs and spokes because you know India is a vast country, so you can have a spoke leading to a spoke leading to another spoke. Sometimes you have five layers of different levels of sophistication in the people and in the equipment. That's it. So you match the level of sophistication of the equipment and the people to the point where you are in this pyramid of uh, hubs and spokes. And you keep the most sophisticated people in the hub and less sophisticated equipment and staff in the spokes. Spokes are closer to where people live. The hubs are require some travel, but you only go there if you have to. This allows you to actually be both more cost effective and be more Uh, higher quality because so better resource
1: so better resource allocation of capital equipment and the professionals behind that capital
4: equipment and because there's a shortage of people you really have to make sure you can get the most out of the people we have and so then use technology to connect the hubs and spokes so that you can have remote uh, consultation remote diagnosis and you can also have information shared between the hubs and spokes so if a patient moves across the different levels of the hub and spoke you are able to seamlessly handle the needs of the patient. So this is one very important element in their design. A second important element is what we call task shifting. And this is simply making sure everyone is working at the highest level of their skill. So if you're a doctor, you don't waste time filling out paperwork. <laughs> in the US, a doctor will spend- That's what EMRs months. are for, right? <laughs> that's what that's EMRs right. are for. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's the EMR supposed to take that off their hands. But they still spend a lot of time documenting stuff. Uh, and they are very frustrated. The average doctor is very frustrated about all of the paperwork they have to do. In the Indian context, a typical doctor may be surrounded by 10 support staff. And what the support staff do is take all of the non-medical work away from the doctor. And therefore, the doctor is three to four times as productive as a doctor in the US. So task shifting, uh, and it's not just task shifting to nurses and nurse practitioners and so on, they create many new categories that don't exist anywhere else in the world of further levels of specialization. So for instance, the eye hospital will have someone called a vision guardian who lives in the village whose job is to sort of wander around the village and look at people who may need eye care. the next level is a vision technician who's a little more sophisticated, who knows how to look, use an eye instrument to figure out if you actually have a problem. Then you get an optometrist, then you get an ophthalmologist, then you get to a surgeon. So you have these many new categories of people who have been uh, created in the system. So in-, in
1: now, lobby, mat- What lesson learned was that from? What lesson learned was that from? Was that, that's not McDonald's though, right? That's, is that coming from somewhere else? Uh,
4: uh, it, it's coming in, in, in many industries. We have this idea of task t- shifting. In the university, I have teaching assistants. In the yep. law firm, you have the paralegals right you go to any yep. industry so this specialization to this hyper specialization helps that's people become more effective okay and it,
1: yeah and it does all kinds of other I'm wonderful. trying to figure things. out where the mcdonald's example comes in that's why
4: that's what i'm asking yeah, you well, the, the mcdonald's or, example so. comes in the way in which you actually handle the patient so in the eye hospital that i was referring to was inspired by mcdonald's they actually have two patients in the operating theater at the same time they have a swiveling microscope the doctor finishes one surgery switches to the next one, the patient is taken out, the next patient is brought in, and the doctor doesn't waste a minute.
0: Wow, wow. So
4: part of the efficiency of the McDonald's is how quickly do you process each patient, but also how quickly do you move to the next patient? So you, there's no downtime. The operating theater is constantly being used. All of your equipment is being constantly used. So that's part of the task shifting and process innovation piece of the, of the puzzle. As a third element is, we, we call it uh, old-fashioned frugality. There's a lots of little ways in which you can save money on capital expenses and operating expenses. The average hospital in the US it looks like a seven-star hotel sometimes. It's very lavish. There's no, there's no connection between that and the quality of healthcare. So what some of these hospitals do is they spend on CapEx and OpEx when it contributes to medical outcomes but when it doesn't they are very frugal you know the offices are are, are frugal uh, the equipment that is used is no more sophisticated than it has to be so if you can do with a monochromatic device you don't use a color device and so on so there's frugality sort of permeates the culture of the entire organization and that includes doctors too by the way not just the administrative staff so what one of the hospitals, every time a doctor wants to prescribe uh, a test or a, or, a, or a medication, a screen little thing pops up on the screen and tells the doctor, by the way, do you know how much this costs? Do you think it's worth it? <laughs> now just making that is information,
1: there, is there, is there a legal construct in the back end there must be a different legal construct you where know, we don't get sued for not prescribing a test here we do
4: right so right. I mean there are differences which which explains why some of these things can't be done in the u.s
0: sure.
4: one of the points we make in our book is everything that's done in India can't be done in the US and should not be done in the us but we have gone so far away from the way in which we might be organized that we need something to bring us back and give us a sense of, if we had to do it right, if we if we had to find the way to give the highest quality care to the greatest number of people at the lowest cost, how would we do it? Well, what we have is lots of ideas on how these hospitals are doing it. And we've put the onus on the US hospital to actually decide which of these ideas would work in the US. And in our book, we have examples of US hospitals that have embraced some of these ideas. Not all of it, but pieces of it. So we have one example of a uh, a company called Iora Health. You, You may have heard of it, it's based out of Boston. And their model is how can we keep people healthy so they don't have to go to hospital? And how can we invest twice as much as anybody else on primary care and save a lot of money downstream Sure. Uh, you know, up to 15 to 20 percent of the total cycle cost if you can provide better uh, upfront primary care. Now, to do that, they've created health coaches assigned to each patient. Now, health coach for me is a kind of a task shifting idea. You're saying, let's take the work away from the doctor, away from the uh, nurses, and put it on someone who is on a pay grade significantly below nurses and doctors. But in terms of people skills sure. and being able to stay on top of what the patient is doing, making sure they're taking their medication and following their diet and following some exercise. And I've signed up to go to that gym like they're meant to do it and so on. It helps to bring down the cost very significantly. Sure. So we think there are examples of US companies that are US hospitals that are picking up some of these ideas and showing they can be applied in the U.S. context. We just need a lot more of it than we're having, we've seen so far.
0: It's very inspiring work. And uh, I, I, how, will, how will this book influence your your teaching moving forward? We'll, 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 what are some of the things that you wanna to convey to your students with much more passion and
4: vigor as a result of your incredible uh, book? Oh, well, I, I think the, the one of the most important things we try to convey is don't assume that poor countries are not, cannot be sources of incredible innovation. Amen, amen. It may not be technological innovation all the time. Sure. But all valuable innovation is not technological in nature. Sometimes it's very, very basic stuff. We're talking compared to our previous two speakers that you had in the program. Mine is very, this is very low tech stuff. There's nothing uh, at the frontiers of technology here. But if you can deliver care for a fraction of the prices, you're doing it in the US. That's something you ought to, to think about. Absolutely. So one of the messages No, that is definitely an innovation.
1: That is definitely an innovation, not That's to right. be overlooked. So. Right,
4: exactly. So we, we encourage them to think about you know, innovation now coming from any part of the world, not just coming from the advanced countries. And the certain kinds of innovations are more likely to come out of emerging markets or poor countries. And we think value innovation is what is very common, likely to come out of these poor countries value is getting the most bang for the buck. The pressure to get the most bang for the buck is very high in poor countries. So you can take any industry, and you could think of a way in which by moving it to a poor country, you actually could make it deliver more value than it is in rich countries. So we think poor countries are, no, think of as laboratories for
0: innovation. No, this is
1: amazing. We're applying different businesses, different business models, and industries here. We're here with Ravi Rab- Ravi Ramamurthy, uh, author of Reverse Innovation in Healthcare, and I think the most important part, how to make value-based delivery work, right? And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. We can follow him. Um, it's just check out his book on Amazon, and more importantly, if you're watching and you're in the healthcare space, here's ways to think about ways to optimize what you're doing on delivery, and more importantly, learn from other models. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Ravi.
0: Welcome. Thank you, guys. Congratulations right. on the book. Thank you. It. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, Ray. Uh, what a spectrum—from a futurist talking about, you know, machine-human blended world to fundamentals of compassion, Kaizen approach, and really customer centricity and delivering equal, perhaps even better quality healthcare uh, at a tiny fraction of the cost. Pretty amazing.
1: Pretty amazing. It is. I know we've had a great day today looking at different spectrums of healthcare from the future to uh, frugality to what's happening inside hospital operations. Um, This takes us to next week. We've got some very interesting uh, folks here. Who
0: do we got? Yeah, it's episode 120. So uh, it's. um, across the uh, you know, uh, 280 guests, unique guest mark. but we have Carol Lehman, CEO of Exonify, as our first guest, David Osso, chairman and CEO of Ceridian, and one of my favorite guests uh, or hosts, uh, I'm sorry, guests, uh, Holger Mueller, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. So three incredibly bright uh, guests, which is a common theme for all of yeah. our students. And it's the
1: pre-HR tech episode, right? And it's the pre-HR tech episode. We got micro learning, we got HR, we got Holger. This is going to be fun. So episode 120. Any special announcements on your end? What's going on? What's new? What's hot?
0: I I just got back from San Francisco, uh, you know, collaborating with a pretty amazing startup and also hosting several customers uh, at Salesforce. So I'm looking forward to... uh, You know, we have a conference coming up, a small conference. I think we anticipate about 180,000 in September. And then, of course, Constellation Connect. So it's uh, going to be a busy September, October on the road. But, you know, I'm preaching to the um, choir with Ray. (laughs) How
1: about you, Ray? Hey, I'm off to India in a few, uh, in 24 hours, uh, off to India and Dubai. Uh, But more importantly, uh, we've got a very big event. Save the date, December 10th. You might start seeing it on the Constellation website. It is a historic event, celebrating uh, the future of the internet. Uh, We'll start revealing more in other episodes. Uh, We'll make a formal announcement soon. So anyways, hold December 10th at the Fairmont in San Jose is officially confirmed. So, uh, all right, well,
0: hey, thanks a lot, everybody. It's historic with a capital H bolded and underlined. So stay tuned. (laughs) Ray, if it's Friday,
1: it's Disrupt TV. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Bye. Bye.